Grace Church, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Today's text is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would open our eyes to see in our hearts to believe what you have to say about yourself in the Word today. Father, continue your faithful work of making us more like Christ. Help us as we look to your Word now. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If I could summarize this week's sermon text in two sentences, it would be as follows. Christians are the temple of the living God. As such, we are to fear the living God by pursuing holiness and not being yoked with unbelievers. It would be to no one's surprise to describe the Corinthians as a people with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. Paul makes it clear in this text that this should not be so. Elsewhere in Scripture, Christians and their relationship with the world are described as separate from, distinct, set apart. The entire book of Proverbs contrasts the very clear differences that exist between the wicked and the righteous. In Exodus, we have recently read that the presence of the Lord distinguished the Israelites from the Egyptians and the rest of the peoples. Yet, you do not have the compromise and the struggle of the Corinthians if you are giving in to sinful indulgences. One remarkable aspect in Paul's defense of his apostleship or his ministry is that he is simultaneously purifying the church. Just a few verses earlier, Paul is commending himself to God, as was pointed out by Pastor Brian last week. Paul's life and ministry did not discredit the gospel. Paul had a wide open heart to the Corinthians and appealed for them to open their hearts to him. He is now setting his sights on the holiness of the church, namely, those professing to be believers and members of this church who are defiling themselves through unhealthy relationships with unbelievers. Let's be clear. The church is not worldly. The church is not secular. The church is not carnal, which means the people of God are neither worldly nor secular. 
as we examine the command in verse 14 and the five questions that underscore this command, keep in mind that the backdrop is Christians are the temple of the living God. As such, we are to fear the living God by pursuing holiness and not being yoked with unbelievers. So our outline is as follows today. The first point, do not be bound with unbelievers. This is taken from chapter 6, verse 14 through 16a. Paul makes this command explicitly clear. Do not be bound with unbelievers. He then follows the command with five questions, each contrasting the distinction between two categories of people, the church, who are comprised of believers in Christ. Paul later refers to them as beloved. Another name for them would be holy ones. The other category are unbelievers, the heathen or unholy ones. Paul uses the metaphor of a yoke to illustrate for the Corinthians what he means by their unhealthy relationship to unbelievers. Well, that begs this question, what does it mean to be yoked together? Well, you are bound to another person in such a way that it alters or changes your identity. In this sense, the believer looks and acts like the unbeliever. John Calvin, in describing the metaphor, describes it in this way. When you are fastened under one yoke, you are walking at the same pace, acting together in the same work. So now that the categories of people are established, he moves to define the relationship. Paul is further explaining what he means by unequally bound. Some of the translations you may have in your hands now may say unequally yoked or mismatched. The word for unequal is used throughout the Bible. I want to give you three examples that I hope will help us better understand the meaning of this word. The first is found in Exodus chapter 34. The Lord was giving the Israelites the stipulations for the covenant. He told them, Do not join yourselves with the inhabitants of other lands, because their gods will become a snare to you, and they will lead you away from worshiping Him. In Leviticus 19, the Lord was telling the Israelites to not breed two different animals to not sow two different seeds. He even told them not to use two different materials for their garments. Lastly, Proverbs 22, we are told not to associate with a man given to anger. So these are three examples in the Bible of, of three of several examples for being unequally associated. Well, why does this matter? It matters because God is a holy God and He's jealous for the holiness of His people. The use of this word helps us to understand that this verse, excuse me, that this was a present issue in the church. This was not something that Paul was addressing in the past, nor was it a future warning. Some in the church were presently yoking themselves to unbelievers. In verse 13, Paul appealed to them to open their heart toward him. 
being open to Paul means not joining with the very ones who are against the teaching of Christ through their behavior. The five questions Paul uses make direct appeals to their heart. Let's be clear. Commands are enough. Do not do this or do this. Commands, when, when they're found in Scripture, can stand alone. Hearts, however, can struggle even with the clear commands. I want to be clear here. The questions that Paul asks here don't open up the possibility for the Corinthians to wiggle around the commands. They strengthen the argument that there is no excuse for any lack of absolute devotion to God. Paul's ministry has been their example. The life of Christ is their foundation. James 4.4 4 says friendship with the world means that you are an enemy of Christ. Or consider two other occasions that Paul encourages devotion to Christ to the Corinthians. The first was in his first letter in chapter 7 verse 35. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Later on in this second letter in chapter 11 verse 3, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. To close this section, <clears throat> I'll do so with the punctuating words of Jesus in John fourteen fifteen. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Christians obey the commands of God because they are as 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, controlled by the love of Christ. Now let's consider each of the nouns that Paul used. Partnership, fellowship, harmony, common, agreement. From the five questions we learn that the believer is righteous, that he has light, that he has Christ, that he's a part of a distinct, unique, and particular family, and that he worships a living God, the living God. The resume, however, for the unbelievers are lawlessness. They're in darkness, part of the family of Satan, and they are worshipers of idols. So let's take these first two rhetorical questions together. What partnership have righteousness and lawlessness. And what fellowship has light with darkness? Partnership means that there's some sharing, that there's communion. Koinonia is the word for fellowship, which means to have things in common or together. So we see in these two questions that the church is righteous and should not fellowship with unbelievers in their wicked deeds, that is, the wicked deeds of unbelievers. Ephesians 5, 3-7 help underscore this. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. 
And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. No fellowship, no partnership. The third question is, what harmony has Christ with Belial? This means uh, to have agreement with or to be in symphony. Few things sound more beautiful than a well-orchestrated symphony. However, there is no harmony that Christ has with Belial. The word Belial is here attributed to Satan. This is the only time in the Bible that the word Belial is used as a personal name. It's the Hebrew extension of worthlessness or treacherous. How different are Christ and Satan? Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He is God in the flesh. Satan is the prince of darkness. Christ is Savior. Satan is a deceiver. And we could go on and on. The answer to this rhetorical question is that there is no harmony between Christ and Satan. There is no symphony between followers of Christ and those Satan uses for his deceptive work. The fourth question is, what is a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or we could maybe ask it in these two ways. What part does he have? Or is in, he in any way a partaker? Two passages of Scripture help illustrate what believers and unbelievers have in common. Ephesians 5.11 Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Or maybe the more familiar Romans 12, 1-2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So when it comes to unbelievers, there can be many things in common. Maybe you're in the same country, the same family, similar vocations. But as Charles Hodge puts it, to the one, Christ is God, the object of supreme reverence and love. To the other, he is a mere man. To the one, the great object of life is to promote the glory of Christ and to secure His favor. To the other, these are objects of indifference. Elements so discordant can never be united in a harmonious whole. Or, as 1 John chapter 2, verses 15-17 through 17 say, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world, 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. The last question, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? This word agreement can be defined as a putting together or a joint deposit. It's interesting here, the word that's used for temple is meant to draw out the presence of God. He is referencing the holy place and the holy of holies. There is no agreement between idols and the presence of the living God. Sacrifices were offered. Blood was spilt. Ceremonial washings and cleansing to clean and purify the high priest to enter the holy of holies. Commandments number one and number two tell us that you shall have no other gods and you shall not make for yourself idols. Or one of the stronger statements against idolatry found in Ezekiel chapter 14. Hear this. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down before me. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord, Any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet? I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the manner in view of the multitude of his idols in order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through all their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the immigrants who stay in Israel who separates himself from me sets up his idols in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me for himself, I, the Lord, will be brought to answer him in my own person. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb, and I will cut him off from among my people, so you will know that I am the Lord. So the Lord has very clear words that He says against those who would bring idols before Him. So that was the first point that do not be the command, do not be bound or unequally yoked or mismatched with unbelievers. The second, in chapter 6, verse 16b through 18, is we are the temple of the living God. This is the second time temple is used in verse 16. Both are the same uses of the word. 
Earlier it was used in a rhetorical question. Now it's used to describe the believer's priestly role in the kingdom of God. For we are the temple of the living God. Take a moment and let this reality have its prominent place. Joy, real joy that God dwells among us. Weightiness as we understand the necessity of living holy and consecrated to our Lord as His kingdom of priests. Being the temple of the living God means that the partnership, the fellowship, the agreement, the harmony and commonality that we seek are all found in Christ. Christ is your righteousness. He is your light. He is your life. He is your mediator or go-between. He is our acceptance before God so that we can function daily in unhindered communion with the triune God. Haifman said it this way, Nowhere in the Old Testament is Israel ever identified with the temple. But the parallel between the phrase, the temple of the living God, in chapter 6, verse 16, and Paul's earlier reference in chapter 3, verse 3, to the Spirit of the living God, indicates that he can equate the church with the temple because under the new covenant, believers themselves are now the location of God's Holy Spirit on earth. For we are the temple of the living God. In this section, Paul weaves together six Old Testament passages to explain the relationship between God and His people. These uh, six Old Testament um, examples are split in three sections here. The first, the explanation begins by pointing back to God's past faithfulness. He's quoting from Leviticus 26, 11 through 12, and likely Ezekiel 37 through 27 when he says, I will dwell in them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. God has remained a faithful presence to His people. He does dwell and walk among them. He is an eternal God who has established a people for His own glory. God has not wavered in His commitment nor fallen short in any promise. Some of the context of Leviticus 26 might be helpful to understand why Paul uses it here and the connection he is seeking to make for the Corinthians. In the first few verses of Leviticus 26, God tells them not to make idols, to keep the Sabbath holy, to walk in His statutes and commands. God tells them He will give them rains in season and grant them peace. Now listen to verses 11-13, through 13, which are quoted in our text. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, so that you would not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. 
The remaining verses in Leviticus 26 speak of what will happen to Israel if they break covenant with God through their disobedience. However, God, as He does throughout the Bible, leaves room for humble hearts to turn to Him in repentance. This Old Testament example underscores for the Corinthians the faithfulness of God and that He has always been jealous for the obedience and heart of His people. Christians are yoked to Christ. For the Corinthians, for us, Grace Church, God is holy. He is good. He is clear on what He expects from His people and He is ready to remember His commitment to His people when disobedience gives way to humble repentance. The explanation continues by God sharing what He requires from His people. So we just considered, or we just looked at the pointing back to God's past faithfulness. Now let's consider and see what He requires from His people. Here He quotes from Isaiah 52.11 and Ezekiel 20.34. Come out from their midst. Be separate. Do not touch what is unclean. The context in Isaiah is related to the Babylonian captivity. Prior to his people going into exile, it was uh, prophesied that they would return. They were told in Isaiah 52, 11, Depart. Depart. Go out from there. Touch nothing unclean. Go out of the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. Paul then uses Ezekiel 20.34, says, I will bring you out of the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. Peter Bala understands the use of Ezekiel, that it's about God's people being cleansed from the impurity that they acquired from their pagan neighbors. So here's why it matters for the Corinthians. For 70 years, the Lord's people were in exile. They were surrounded by pagan worship, pagan, pagan living, all of which came because of their rebellion against God. As the Lord was prepared to bring them out, they had to be separated from the people. They had to be cleansed from them. The explanation becomes personal now as Paul explains how the Corinthians are grafted in as his people. What has God done for them in Christ? This is basically a reiteration of what he says in the latter phrases of verse 16. I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters. In this section, Paul draws upon Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7, and 2 Samuel 7, 14. Let me read them both. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. In 2 Samuel seven fourteen, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Paul uses these two Old Testament texts to draw upon the theme of adoption. 
He will not only be a God to them, but he describes himself as a father. They're not only his people, they are sons and daughters. To be holy unto the Lord means that you are in his kingdom. You are in his family. You are welcomed into his presence. It means God dwells among you. He is near. He is with you. He is close. We have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God has made peace with us in Christ. There is no more bondage, no more captivity, no more con no condemnation. God has made His people holy through the holiness of Jesus Christ. And it means that we pursue holiness and purity. It means that we cannot be bound to unbelievers. We must be separate and set apart. Hebrews 3, 12-15 Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Holiness and devotion and love to Christ is a mark that distinguishes God's people from the rest of the world. Would the Corinthians have known the context for each phrase Paul quotes? Probably not. But they would know that each phrase was pregnant with historical context for how God was establishing a holy people for himself. Haifman said Paul's application of these commands to the Corinthians again reflects his conviction that the promised restoration of God's people is already beginning to take place in the establishment of the church in Corinth. The Lord Almighty says, I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters. Lastly, let's consider as our application chapter 7, verse 1. Pursuing holiness in the fear of the Lord. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That begs the question, what are these promises? The covenant promises that were given to Abraham in Genesis. The promises in the past serve as the motivation in the presence for them to cleanse and purify themselves. He appeals to the Corinthians in their position before God as beloved or as loved ones. Haifman again says it underscores that the obedience in view is not the believer's attempt to win God's love, but the covenant stipulation or response that flows from being loved by God in Christ. What good news this is. The Christian is then free to pursue God in holiness, to cleanse yourself from anything that would defile you because you have been covered and cleansed by the blood of Christ. 
Fear of the Lord is a distinguishing mark among Christians, and holiness is perfected in the fear of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This phrase Charles Simeon understands to mean the tenderness of conscience, the watchfulness of mind that guards against even a thought which would be displeasing to God. Fear is perfected in Christ. We see that Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 3. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Fear is put in the heart of the Lord's people in the new covenant. Look with me. Jeremiah 32, 38-40 They shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me always, for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. What do we cleanse ourselves from? Cleanse from all defilement that would stain or pollute. This includes all filthiness, physical, moral, mental, ceremonial. But cleansing from defilement is not enough. Holiness is required. Robertson, in discussing this cleansing from filth, says it's not merely negative goodness from cleansing, but aggressive and progressive holiness. Not a sudden attainment of complete holiness, but a continuous process. 1 Thessalonians 3, 11-13 Now may our God and Father Himself, in Jesus our Lord, direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Before going further, I want to point out the corporate aspect of this entire passage. It was written to a church. In the Old Testament, examples that we uh, shared earlier, God was establishing a people for himself. Hopefully this underscores the phrase, let us. Each member of the church has a priestly role. The purity of the church matters, and this is why no member of the church should pollute the church by unequally yoking themselves to the very things Christ shed his blood to free them from. We bear a responsibility to present one another complete in Christ. We admonish one another to throw off the sin that entangles, to run the race of Christ together, to finish faithfully, to help each other not join ourselves to the world. And we bear the responsibility to remove from us any who would be unwilling to be unequally yoked to the world. Christ will present to the Father a pure, 
holy bride. This is the corporate aspect of us together perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. What wonderful promises God has fulfilled for His glory on behalf of His people through Christ. And He says about His people, I will walk among them. God draws near to His people. What we have as a kingdom of priests is better than what Adam and Eve enjoyed before their sin. We enjoy this walk, this fellowship, this communion, this harmony with God through the merits of Christ. God has drawn near to His people. He is with His people. His closeness and the enjoyment of His presence is our motivation for holiness. We fear Him because He has loved us in Christ. We are yoked to Christ, and therefore the lust of the world, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life gives way to humility in pursuit of holiness. It's through the example of the tabernacle and temple that we see how God made us holy. Each and every sacrifice offered to God, the intricate detail of the tabernacle, the yearly atonement made by the high priest, the daily sacrificial offerings, the incense of prayers, all of it required by God was still not enough to make us holy. We had to have Christ. And God gave His people what would satisfy His wrath and thus made us holy. Isaiah 61, 6, But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. 1 Peter 2, 5, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verses 9 and 10 of 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's so many wonderful realities in this verse. But I want to again highlight, God has made His people a holy nation. Dear saints, you holy ones, set apart for the living God. Cleanse yourselves now from anything that would prohibit your practical pursuit of holiness. Do this in the fear of the Lord. Revelation 1, 5-6, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Now, may our God and Father himself 
and Jesus Christ our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. May the Lord get the glory that is due his name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Grace Church, you are love.